YFA writers. I'm so excited to be bringing you a special debut author episode today featuring Kate Brody, author of the recently released novel Rabbit Hole. But before we get to that conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple listeners who recently donated in support of the podcast. First, a big thank you to Sarah Blood, who sent $25 our way. Thank you so much, Sarah. In addition, Aaron Sands, a longtime listener, donated and included a note that read, Sending appreciation your way for the great work you do showcasing and interviewing exciting, talented writers. Keep it up. Thank you, Aaron and Sarah, for the support. It means a lot. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, we've got a special debut author's episode with Kate Brody, author of the recently released novel Rabbit Hole, published by Soho Press. Kate holds an MFA from NYU. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in The New York Times, Parents, Crime Reads, Lit Hub, Electric Lit, Noema, The Literary Review, Write or Die, and other magazines. Today, Kate has brought an excerpt from her debut novel to read for us. So I'll be reading from close to the start of Rabbit Hole. Uh, Rabbit Hole is about a young English teacher, Teddy Engstrom, whose father dies by suicide on the 10-year anniversary of her sister's disappearance. Um, And this section is Teddy and her mother uh, scattering his remains. We cremate him to get it over with. And on Monday, while it's raining and everyone is home or at work, we sneak back onto the bridge where he killed himself to scatter his ashes through the hole he left behind. Is this the right place? Mom asks, when we've already thrown half the dust. Where else? I'm holding a fistful of my father in a gloved hand. The ashes are coarse and gray, and mom told me they taste of metal and eggs. She said she felt compelled to consume a small amount. I didn't ask questions. I don't know, she says. You can let that go. I empty my hand, but some ashes stick to the wet suede. Mom says they are called cremains. They shouldn't make portmanteaus for stuff like this, I think. What they should do is find a way to make this powder smell like the person it came from, like bar soap and hidden chocolates. The mortician put the remains in a large square tin and covered them with loose cotton like a bottle of aspirin. I thought it was a nice touch. It reminded me of the rabbit holes we used to find in the backyard as kids, covered over with the mama's down. Dad would poke at the cottony fluff using a stick, 
so we could peek at the bunnies, small as hamsters and blind, curled together for warmth. He'd hold the barrier back for a moment, warning us not to touch anything and leave a scent, or the mama rabbit would abandon her babies and they'd starve. Then he'd drop it gently. The cotton would fall and the bunnies would disappear, safe, ready for the mama to come home. We finished the work in silence. There is more to spread than I had anticipated. I imagined one elegant, sweeping gesture, but we have to return over and over to the supply until it becomes rote, a chore. Somewhere in the middle, it strikes me as funny. I laugh and mom laughs too, neither of us acknowledging the joke. And then at the end, it's sad again. At the end when there's only a little powder left in the plastic lining and mom shakes it feebly over the jagged wooden posts and I can tell we're both thinking how small it all feels, the end of a person. Why do you think he did it, mom asks. He was depressed, I say, you know that. He hadn't been himself for a long time. I guess not, she says. Maybe I should have known he might. He had never tried before, I don't think. She pauses. The date makes sense. The anniversary. That's funny, I say. We're out of ashes, so I peel my soiled gloves and throw them down into the river. That's the part I understand the least. I can't imagine him wanting to steal Angie's thunder. I shake my head. That's putting it wrong. Let's get into the car, Mom says. This damp will chill your bones. She stares out over the bridge. She's not looking down into the shallows where his car fell, but out. Out towards the place where the river turns black in the shadow of the narrowing trees, where it snakes out of sight. The last part visible to the eye. This is a beautiful place, isn't it? Through my sunglasses, everything is cast in gray. Sky, trees, river like an artery of tar. Sure, I say, and I turn my parka into an umbrella, holding it above both our heads so we can run back to the car together. Soon it will be April, and then May, and then summer, and then for a moment, this place will be briefly beautiful. I can imagine it for her. Anyway, she says, when we're ten minutes into the drive, we haven't spoken since the bridge. I'm not surprised with his obsession. What obsession? The little I could gather. Angie? All his theories. He was still doing that stuff? I say feigning incredulity, even though I knew it was for his sake that we never acknowledged she was dead. At some point, we all tacitly agreed to not ask and not tell. We settled on treating him like a mental patient, and he settled on treating us like apostates. I guess he finally gave up, Mom says. Kate, thanks for reading. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for having me. Well, this book is a real page turner. I mean, I was hooked pretty much from the very beginning, from that moment when the narrator goes down the online rabbit hole in search of ans- answers to her sister's disappearance and her father's death. I-, I couldn't put it down. So first off, congratulations. How does it feel to have your debut book out there in the world? Uh, it's kind of surreal. I mean, you work yeah. on it for a long time and then you actually kind of finish working on it and then a long time passes. Um so I feel a little estranged from it in a way, um, but it's very nice, this part of it. I mean, I've seen other writers go through it, and it always felt very far away. Um, so it's, I'm trying to enjoy it. It's obviously kind of a crazy time, but no complaining. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that timeline like from like when you first started writing the book to now it coming out? I think I started writing it in earnest. Um, at the start of 2019. So I was on maternity leave with my uh, oldest son. 
And I wrote the book in about a year. And um, 2020, right when the pandemic hit, I went out on submission. And I think that was also, I had been teaching and I had a little more time. When the, when the pandemic first happened, no one really understood remote teaching. So um, all of a sudden my schedule freed up in a huge way because we, it wasn't um, at the start, it wasn't like teachers were on all day, every day. So I had, I had enough time to actually get the book ready for submission. I sent it out to agents in 2020, quickly um, found my agent. And then we edited the book for about a year together, sold it in the UK in 2021, and then sold it here in 2022. Um, and then it came out about 18 months after that. So it's a, it's a long road. <laughs> yeah, it is. Five years sounds like a lot, but I've also talked to authors who say that it took them 10, 20 years. So it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, no, it could. And I mean, I think if I had known how long it was going to be at the start, I, I would have found that pretty demoralizing, I think. But when you're in it, you're just kind of trying to get to the next step, trying to get to the next hurdle. I just need to find an agent. We just need to edit it. We just need to sell it. And so you're busy the whole time. Well, we're definitely going to talk more about that journey to this moment because I think it's it's really interesting, the journey you've been on. But first, I want to talk about Rabbit Hole. I think anyone listening who's interested in that like true crime genre, be it podcasts or documentaries, they're going to find this novel really interesting and entertaining because it's tapping into the same emotions that, that make those stories so engrossing. But what I love about this story is how it is told from the perspective of the family. We see how these true crime mysteries and investigations affect the people who are closest to the victims. So you're putting like a human face on this phenomenon, which I think is really important. So I'm curious to hear how you came up with the idea for this story and how much that true crime craze was on your mind as you dove into writing this book. I think I was swept up in that craze like everyone else. Um, but I noticed that the quality of the true crime I was consuming just dropped off rapidly. Like it, uh, it started with, you know, in cold blood and helped their skelter and even kind of the early true crime stuff like serial or, you know, it felt yeah. really thoughtful and researched. Um, and then quickly became this, uh, you know, the algorithms recommending like dateline stuff to me and things where the objective of it felt like titillation. Um, and also I was becoming really numb to it. And uh, I looked around and it, it seemed that other people were as well. Just the way we started talking about these crimes, like, oh, my favorite murder is whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so I wanted to think a little bit about how every crime story is a story of a family's tragedy like just necessarily. Um, and I think when you're writing stories about grief are often really slow because grief is this kind of slow intractable process and crime stories have to be sort of propulsive and plotty. Um, and yet they are the same story because that it, there is always a tragedy there. So it was trying to marry those two things and think a little bit about um, how to make this narrative actually reflect the emotional experience of the people living through it and not be something that felt, I mean, it seems, I feel a little dramatic saying like exploitative because these are fictional characters. I didn't use any one real crime right. as like the basis right. of it, but just humane, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that all tracks with me. I mean, that makes total sense. Like there was this moment where that true crime thing really 
um, took off, especially on like streaming services where suddenly there were just like all of these documentaries uh, about these actual murders and actual crimes that were just popping up all the time. And like you said, it was clearly more about content than quality. And yeah, it's easy to get swept up in that and then forget that there are human beings that were directly affected by this stuff. And maybe fiction in some ways is a better place to explore that than trying to do it in nonfiction, right? Yeah, I think you have um, obviously a sort of unique ability to get at interiority. And because it's not visual too, there's, I think, less inherent objectification. You're not like so much true crime is um, is based on how photogenic the victims are right? Like yeah. you, these beautiful, young, almost exclusively white women. Um, and so the book gets into that a little bit too, that the version of Angie that is kind of held up by the true crime enthusiast doesn't quite jive with Teddy's own memory of her sister. You know, in her memory, Angie is kind of a loser, kind of a burnout, um, filled with a lot of rage. And of course she gets flattened into something else, for the purposes of true crime hagiography, because she's the victim of this um, unsolved disappearance. Yeah. That was one thing that stood out to me when I was reading it, that like uh, the victims that are focused on in these true crime conspiracy theories and documentaries often are exclusively female. So like, that's interesting. And then also like when the narrator Teddy goes down that like Reddit rabbit hole in the book she finds that yeah the people on the these web pages are kind of sexualizing her missing sister in in some ways right so i'm curious to hear you talk about your research for this novel were you spending a lot of time like exploring those corners of the internet and if so what did you learn from it i'm not i'm not like a huge research person honestly i think i do it mostly intuitively um with reddit it wasn't that i set out to research it so much as I was genuinely curious about the site. And I think I, I wasn't entirely sure um, how social media was going to come into the book. And then once I started exploring Reddit and spending a lot of time on Reddit, it felt like a very natural intersection for this story. Um, and, and Reddit is actually, it lends itself to novelization in a way, because it's not an image-based platform right. um, like Instagram. There's not a ton of emojis. There's not really profiles. It's it's really text-based and it's kind of retro in that sense. But I spent a little time on those true crime communities. Mostly I was worried about just getting the voice right. Because I think whether you're in one of those true crime subreddits or any other subreddit, the thing, the craft thing that I was struck by spending time on Reddit was voice. It just feels like a cacophony of different voices. Everyone has um, slightly different style. Uh, and yet there are things that unite all of the users on the platform and a way of speaking that is sort of unique to that corner of the internet. So I just wanted to get that part right. And I, I spent time um, on Reddit's also that just felt relevant to me. So like writing Reddit's and parenting Reddit's and things to have a sense of, well, what does it mean to be part of this community and feel kind of plugged into this? Um, and then a lot of it was just imagining being the subject of this kind of scrutiny. There's a scene in the book where Teddy kind of stumbles upon um, a really old thread of people discussing her. And the idea of 
that kind of thing existing on the internet, you know, other people talking about you and you're not even aware of it. That felt like horror to me. So then that, um, that I tried to kind of like up the horror for those parts of it. Well, as I mentioned, much of rabbit hole is focused on the family of the victims. The story follows Teddy whose sister has disappeared and whose father has recently died by suicide. This focus on the family, both the narrator and her mother, who's still alive, gives the story a different lens than uh, than I would usually see in a story like this, which I really liked. Um, I know that you have two children at home. I'm curious to hear if you think becoming a mother yourself influenced the way that you approach this story and these characters. That's interesting. Um, it definitely affected the writing and editing of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of the characters, I think a lot of Teddy, I mean, I wrote the book when I was in my mid to late twenties um, and I was teaching high school. So Teddy is kind of an alternate version of me, like a darker version of me who can't get out of this period of grief. Um, and I think parts of her family are based more on my family of origin, if anything. Um, my dad had a similar thing where he had a son who was slightly older than me, who he didn't really acknowledge. Um, Teddy has that sort of relationship with her half brother in the book. Um, and there are things I pulled from other people's families, but the experiences that she has, you know, dealing with family members with addiction. That was more, I think, my family of origin. I don't know that I'm ready to write about parenting. I mean, my oldest is almost five now, because like I said, he was born when I started writing the book. But it takes me a long time to process things. I feel like I have to be kind of 10 years out of a period of life to look back and be able to write about it. So when I was in my early 20s, I was writing a lot of characters who were in high school. Um in my late twenties, you know, thinking back on that kind of coming of age period, uh, maybe in a few years, I'll, I'll think more about parenting specifically. I also think I have just a pretty boring, like stable home life. Like I've worked pretty hard to create that. So there's not a lot of plot here. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, also, I think a good thing for people who are involved in the arts to have some kind of stability at home. Yeah. I'm the kind of person and the kind of writer that as soon as like something new enters my life, suddenly it's like showing up in my writing. Like, really? Yeah, that's the kind of thing. So, um, so I was just curious if you found like your writing changing, uh, you know, like after starting a family, but you said it definitely affected the writing. I'm guessing you're alluding to just like uh, a little bit less time, uh, a little yeah. bit more distractions if I had to guess. <laughs> Yeah, you I'm I'm less precious than I used to. I mean, I don't know if I was ever that precious. I had kids kind of young for New York. So, um, not for like history, but I was <laughs> 26 when I got pregnant. So, I was, you know, the first of my friends and um I was still broke as hell. So, I never really had a, that moment to really get precious about my writing routine. I was never you know, I take a three hour walk in the morning or, you know, whatever. Uh -huh. Um, it's always kind of been like, Oh, I've got these jobs. I've got this. I'll write at night. I, I write on the couch. Um, so I think if anything, just having kids, I never, I never got to a place, um, of comfort. And now the kids are just doing what my old party schedule used to do, which <laughs> yeah, is <right. laughs> take up an unnecessary amount of time and, uh, force me to write in like strange 
positions. I feel like this is the first time I've heard someone claim that uh, that like partying uh, trained them for being a mother. But hey, I'm I'm all, I'm all in. I'm going to use that on my mom if I have kids. I'm going to tell her that that's what I was doing in my twenties. <laughs> yeah, this way you just one mess into a different kind of mess. You don't have that period of like my house is so tidy. You never yeah. have that. <laughs> Um, okay, so I've seen Rabbit Hole described as a thriller and a mystery, and it is those things. But to me, it's very much a character-driven literary novel as well. People love to throw around the terms literary versus genre when describing fiction. How much stock do you put in those terms, and how do you think of your own work? So I wrote a novel before Rabbit Hole um, that was definitely literary fiction, and then I couldn't find an agent for that. Um, and when I started rabbit hole, I was like, I want to sell this book. You know, I Mm -hmm. can't have, I can't just be stuck in failed manuscripts around the house. I had a baby at that point. So I figured if I fail twice, I don't know that I'll get back on the horse a third time with kids. I I had seen people in my cohort quit, like permanently quit writing. And I didn't want that to be me. So I, um, I very consciously kind of sought out, a genre container for the story. I don't think I'm a plot person by nature. It's very hard for me to think in those terms. I don't have an outline. Um, I get very distracted writing about how everyone's feeling and I kind of lose the thread of what I meant to do that day. So um, the hardest part of writing the book was making it into a thriller. Cause I think when we submitted it to my UK agent, um, the feedback was like, this is really straddling the line between literary fiction and mystery. And we just don't know how to market it. So let's try to tip it further into the mist. Like, so it's solidly a mystery. And I, I hope we succeeded and that it's kind of both. I mean, I think it would be impossible to take it out of literary fiction. Cause I think that's more just about the quality of the language. Um, But whether or not it succeeds as a mystery, I mean, I think that depends on the reader that you ask. There are certainly some like dyed in the wool thriller readers who expect certain things from their books. And I don't know that this book is delivering on all those things for them. I'm also kind of okay with that. I don't really want to write a formulaic book that is just something you can throw back and never think about again. So um, yeah, I mean... I didn't think about it maybe as much as I should have. Um, And I've been surprised at how much of the conversation post-publication has been about genre and like, what is this book and how do I categorize it? And um, I don't know that that is a concern for authors. I think that's kind of more of a marketing concern. I actually don't even really think it should be a concern for readers, but I'm surprised that it is. I definitely don't read that way. Like I've, I know there've been some reviews of the book that are like, if I had been told this was literary fiction, I'd give it five stars, but I was told it was a thriller. So I give it three. I'm like, wow, that's so weird. I cannot imagine approaching a book that way, you know, and being like, oh, well, um, it doesn't match what I thought it was going to be. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about it more, I guess. Um, but I'm trying not to let it dictate the actual writing. Um, I'm working on another book now that, I guess I also really haven't thought about where it fits. And I know there are kind of thriller elements I'm borrowing from, but it's less of a thriller than this book, if anything. And um, how they decide to market it is is out of my hands, really. 
I always find it to be such an interesting discussion to, you know, like hear what the writers think about this question, because I mean, I guess it's human nature that we want to categorize things, but it's not like there's this clear distinction between genre fiction and literary fiction. Like you'll get different definitions of what literary fiction means if you ask two or three different people. Right. Um, So for my money, the best genre fiction, quote unquote, genre fiction has literary language in it. And a lot of the most successful literary fiction books have genre elements to them. So, um, yeah, it's interesting just to see like this moment where people are talking about this a lot, I feel like. And so to see read this book, I found it very exciting to see like, oh, this book has its foot on both sides and it's pulling from both of those and it's working really well. Um, so it becomes a model for like, no, I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm, I am what I am, you know? I hope so. I I think literary fiction has become, if anything, more inclusive. Like there's so yeah. much more speculative literary fiction yeah, than definitely. there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of like cool sci-fi, like station or like station 11, like futuristic kind of stuff. Um, but I think, yeah, the genre fiction piece is interesting. I mean, there, there are writers like Tana French, who's writes, you know, the Dublin murder squad mysteries, which I love. And I think have a ton of literary merit. They're just like beautifully written and not all that different from something like secret history, which I think we've all decided is literary fiction, even though it could kind of easily be a mystery. Um, and yeah, here they're marketing this book as a mystery thriller. Um, but in the UK, I think it it is categorized as literary fiction. So it's interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so a lot of our listeners are emerging writers who are either in MFA programs or are considering attending one. And a lot of them I hear are interested in writing genre work, but I hear people say that they're worried that like the MFA space is not for them if they're writing stories that have genre elements. You attended the NYU MFA program graduating in 2015. That's a prestigious program staffed by many big name literary fiction writers. I know you said that you've more recently kind of moved towards the thriller mystery thing. Were you writing stories with genre elements back then? Or has that just been a change that occurred after? I, no, I wouldn't have dared, honestly. Really? There was such a, I think, such a stigma oh, that's um, interesting. with genre fiction. I I also, I think, just didn't write any genre fiction at that point because the workshop model is so, I think, kind of predicated on a specific type of short story. Um, and of all the craft, you know, at, at NYU, you take workshops and you take craft classes. Those are kind of the two categories and I don't know that we spend a lot of time talking about plot at all. Um, and I even had one professor who I adore, um, Amy Hempel, who was like, who cares about plot? And I remember thinking like, yeah, totally. Who cares about plot? And sometimes <laughs> I still do think that like whenever I get a note from an editor who's like, let's make this move a little faster. I'm like, who cares about plot? Um, but yeah, no, I wouldn't have. I think the reception would have been very poor, honestly. Maybe things have changed. I mean, that was almost a decade ago now. So um, it's possible as they invite younger writers to be part of their programs and those writers are doing more speculative things that the workshops are becoming more open to that kind of writing. Um, 
but I don't even think I saw any speculative fiction from other writers. It was all kind of slice of life, literary fiction. A lot of it was clearly auto fiction. Um, yeah. And it was a little um, same, same, same. Yeah. That's so interesting because I mean, I guess it has been really, I mean, at least to me in the last decade that like some of this literary fiction has really been showing up with more genre elements, you know, but so many of the MFA students that I interview nowadays are writing genre tinge stuff. And they talk about how a, a lot of programs are really receptive to that. I can't speak to NYU specifically. I interviewed a, Sasha Debevic McKinney, who is a poet there. Um, so we mostly talked about the poetry side of it. Um, but that's super interesting that like 10 years ago, at least in your program, there was like nobody doing it, but now it seems like pretty common. Yeah. I think um, when I taught, I taught high school kids and I taught some creative writing workshops. The one thing I did notice with students who were really devoted to writing genre fiction was that sometimes they were genuinely too caught up in the genre stuff and they were missing a lot of what we were talking about. I don't know that it's bad practice to really try to write like a beautiful, quiet little story and not have everything rely on these fantastical elements that you're bringing in. I think um, a lot of writers who have found a home in genre or not even genre fiction, like I'm thinking of somebody like George Saunders, whose work is very literary, but who also is very odd. Um, I, as I understand it, his background was pretty similar. Like he wrote these like realistic stories. They weren't really working for him, but I also do think probably you need a little bit of that training so that when you get to let loose um, there's something there to kind of hold everything in place. Like you do need those human moments. I, a lot of genre writers obviously do that really well, but I think, yeah, on both sides, you kind of need to find a balance between all these exciting things you want to do and, um, and the craft. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You mentioned working with Amy Hempel. You also got to work with Mary Gateskill and E.L. Doctorow, among others. What stands out to you? most when you look back on that experience, your time working with those authors, are there lessons they taught you that you still think about today? The lessons that have stuck with me are honestly, and I think about this a lot when I'm teaching too, they're the tiniest little pragmatic pieces of advice. Like it's never the big sweeping thing. Um, like I had Hannah Tinty for a class and I I'm sure she was wonderful. I barely remember anything she said, except she said at one point, um, don't have your characters cry unless you're sure the reader is going to cry because if the <laughs> characters cry and the reader's not crying, it creates this like emotional distance. Like, like you've actually lost them. You've done something to sort of break that bond. But if you know you have them, then that you can like go for it. And I yeah. think about that and that's so specific, but it's great advice. It's like <laughs> a perfect, it's great. Um, so stuff like that. I mean, Amy Hempel, I was wrestling with this scene, you know, sometimes you get into a scene and you're so, you're so into the world that you've built that you, you forget that you've built it. So I was like, ah, oh, the couch is here, but I kind of need the couch to be here. So I have these pages where they're like moving the couch. And she was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, just have the couch be over there. Like, and uh, she would do that sometimes where she'd just be like, sometimes not every line is going to be, you know, she's a beautiful writer. Every sentence of hers is gorgeous, 
But um, she was like, sometimes you need the door open. So it's just he opened the door, you know, like just you're just some sentences are just getting work done for you on the yeah, page. Right. And having that come from her meant a lot. Um, so, yeah, it was like little things like that. I mean, Dr. O, I had him at the very end of his life. He was very ill, but he's so full of great writing advice. And he was so pragmatic. Um, a lot of his advice, because we were all idiots and like some of my classmates would show up to class high and like do dumb <laughs> stuff. And he was just like, you guys have to take this seriously, you know, like be super boring. You don't have to write what you know, like Kafka was an accountant. You just have to keep your life in order so that you can do this work and be really rigorous about it. Um, and I, I think about his, he said this in class, but it's also oft quoted like uh, writing a novel is like driving in the fog or at night you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. And that is so comforting to me every time I'm in a project. Cause you get to those moments yeah. where you're like, I can only see as far as my headlights. Right. But you can, you can, you can make the whole trip that way. Yeah. Yeah. I have this, like um, this print of a painting over my writing desk. That's just like a ship at sea at night, just like adrift <laughs> on the waves. And I look at that when I'm feeling really frustrated or lost in a story and really like, okay, I just have to stay afloat. Just have to keep going and I'll find wherever it I'm supposed to be. I'll get there. Yes. Yeah. And how comforting to know that like Billy Bathgate was written the same way, you know, yeah. that he ne he didn't know where that was going. He, every page was like, okay, we're going to do this page. We're going to do 500 words a day. Um, it's nice. Yeah, it is nice. Okay, so you mentioned that you wrote a thesis while you were in the MFA program. And then after leaving the program, you um, tried to find an agent with that book and weren't able to place it. I'm really curious to hear you talk about that experience, what you learned from it, and what advice you have for those who are just out of the MFA and maybe are facing similar issues. I think... Um it was painful, obviously. It was a big book. It was, I think after I edited it down, it was like 110,000 words. And um, it was the first novel I wrote. So it was this enormous labor. I mean, they do get easier to write, or at least you know that you can do it. I wasn't sure if I, if that was kind of all I had. By the time you finish your first book, I think you feel like there's just nothing left in the tank. Right. Um, so by the same token, I'm glad I didn't publish it. Like it was kind of a mess. Um, it would have been very hard to edit. I was really selective about where I queried. I wanted like a great agent. Um, and so I only went after, I think like a dozen agents. And then I was getting a lot of the same feedback. Like we read the whole thing. We liked it. There's a lot here you know, to admire, but it's, this is not saleable, goes on too long. There's not enough plot. And that kind of feedback, it would have been extremely difficult to edit the novel to have some kind of plot. I mean, it, it took place over like a, a woman's entire life. Um, and I think rather than spend years and years trying to fix the book and maybe creating more of a mess, I just started fresh. And I think that was the right call. Um, hard to do for sure. But I, I think people really like 
overestimate the amount of time it's going to take you to write a second book um, and underestimate how much time you will sink. There's like a lost cost. What is it? Lost cost fallacy. Sunk cost. Um, sunk cost fallacy. Um, where you think, well, I've put five years into this. Like I can't give up on it, but you can and you should. Yeah. <laughs> and everything you've learned in that book will serve you in the next project. But yeah, I think um, also... It's, it just takes a lot of time. I mean, I have friends who wrote theses and they did ultimately publish those books, but they only did that like a year ago, two years ago. It still took everybody a long time to get that thesis in shape and find a home for it. Um, and some of those books, I think, will be tough to follow up because now you've been working on that book for 10 years and now they're going through what I went through at 25, which is oh shit, can I do it again? And they will, like they'll find a way. Um, but there's something comforting right now of knowing I'm not really on my second book. I'm on my third book. So yeah, it'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. And if you start to feel that again, right? Like, oh, can I do another one? Well, you already have. So just like writing the story, getting used to that feeling of being a little lost and a little nervous. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that that feeling comes before even starting a project like a novel. Um, but at least now you've been through it and you know, okay, I can do it. Yeah. I think it's a similar thing with short stories too, which I, which most people in MFA programs have experienced that feeling of you write one story and you're so precious about it. And it's, you have to place it somewhere and you're going to edit it to death. And then after you've thrown away a certain number of stories, like just fully thrown them away, you, you're a little looser, you're a little freer. You can try things without feeling like this has to work, you know, and you're putting less pressure on every artistic decision you're making. Um, and books are the same way, you know, it's, I wouldn't have wanted to hear that probably when I started my MFA, that it's all (laughs) going to just be in a big pile, but, um, but your career also has a kind of momentum, like things get, you get faster and you get better. And I think the, actually the faster you can get to that place of this is sort of all grist for the mill, then you can, you can move even to, to the levels that you want to go to even right. faster. Right. I mean, I actually think that your experience of not selling that first book is actually pretty common. Like I've talked to a lot of authors who have told me that they didn't sell the thesis they wrote in their writing program, but they sold the next book they wrote. Yeah. Um, so th- there's also some comfort in that knowing that yeah. like, you know, we spend all of this time working on our novels or collections, whatever we're writing in our MFA programs, but it's not the be all end all. Yeah. And every book you write, I think even rabbit hole it's out now. I'm proud of it, but I, this is not the book I would write today. And I'm so aware of that. Every time I'm talking about it, I, I almost want to issue a disclaimer. Like I was, you know, I was 27 when I wrote this book. This is not the book I would write today. Um, and you don't need to. And I think you should stand behind all your work, but you change and the work sort of exists to as like guideposts of where you were. Um, and so, yeah, the thesis book, I still like it. I don't think it's terrible, um, but it is not the book I would write today either. So I think I'm just constantly trying to like think about, well, what's the book I'm writing right now and everything else. Once you're done with it, you know, it's in the reader's hands. You mentioned earlier that when um, you sold this book that um, you also sold it in the UK, which I I believe you actually sold it in the UK before you sold it in the US. 
and maybe even for more money in the UK, all of which is pretty unique. So what was that whole experience like? Yes, we... um my U.S. editor, my U.S. agent, rather, is um, Hillary Jacobson, and she was at uh, ICM when I first linked up with her. But then CAA bought ICM, so now she's at CAA. Because she's at a pretty big agency, she connected me pretty automatically with a U.K. agent who works um, with a partner agency. I I do really recommend this to a lot of like young writers think not just about who the agents are, but but think about the agency thing. I wasn't at all. I was really interested in Hillary because I liked the work she had done. She put out um, my dark Vanessa, which I loved and felt was a comp for rabbit hole, but I hadn't really thought about big agency versus small agency. And I will say everything about her being at CAA has been a positive. Like I have a film agent automatically didn't have to look for anybody UK agent automatically. Um, and I have friends who have really great agents at really small agencies, but like well-known reputable agencies, they sell their book to a big publisher here in the U S but then every other step is an enormous amount of work. Like finding UK agent is a whole separate thing, finding a film agent. Um, so I think because that was so automatic, we had a lot of quick success. My UK agent took the book out on her own, uh, at the same time, we sold it quickly to Bloomsbury in the UK. And Bloomsbury, while an indie, is a bigger indie than Soho. So when we sold the book here, after, like 10 months after, to Soho, we had already done a round of edits with Bloomsbury. I got more money with Bloomsbury. Um, so there was this weird period where I thought, well, I don't even know if we're going to sell the book in the US. It might only come out in the UK, which would be really strange because I'm an American author. And then it worked out. Bloomsbury was waiting for an American publisher to come on. And once they did, they take a backseat because I'm an American author. So Bloomsbury, even though they did the original edits um, and they came on first and they paid more money, when all was said and done and the copy is locked, they still license it from the American publisher. Like they actually pay to license it. So it's this weird, (laughs) the way publishing works is so odd. Um, and then they wanted the U.S. to lead. So the book was published here first and then two weeks later in the U.K. Oh, it's all, yeah, super interesting. And the reason that we have agents, right? Because this, yeah. this is too complicated for me to try to deal with. For sure. Having a great agent has been just, it's taken a lot of the the pain out of it, I think. I mean, I see what other people go through and some of their agents seem fine and some of them seem really good and I've never met anyone who has had such a positive experience as I've had with their agent. I mean, I think Hillary is both super responsive, crazy fast, um, very committed to like a whole career kind of perspective. So everything is sort of, well, what's the next book and the next book and how can we do things for you in a way that's going to be strategic. Um, And also she's just, has such a keen editorial vision. Um, and I think that is so important as more of the editorial work gets shifted onto agents that you have somebody who you trust, like you would trust an editor because your agent right. is really going to be the first editor of your work. And what about the publicity side of all of this? What's it been like in the lead up to the book coming out and now that it's out in the world? Yeah. So I knew we were, um, 
you know, Rabbit Hole came out with Soho, which Soho does an amazing job. I think they put out some really cool books, but they are an indie. So this is not like Penguin Deep Pockets. <laughs> um, and I was prepared to kind of DIY as much as I had to. So I went pretty hard with the publicity stuff. Like, and I made it clear to everyone on the team, I am willing to work my ass off. So if there's a place that you think will take an essay, I will write that essay. Um, and it was a, a kind of a, a sprint for a couple of months before the book came out of just writing a lot of essays, pitching a lot of places, doing a lot of my own research, looking at um, other writers who had campaigns I really admired, especially indie writers, where I knew they had to get creative. Writers at Catapult or Soho or um, Grey Wolf. And, you know, just following down those leads, like, okay, they did an interview here with this person. Let me let me pitch them something. Knowing the angles on your own book, like if the angle is Reddit, if the angle is a personal thing that ties into the book. Um, but taking a step back and thinking about what am I selling to this person that's going to be useful to them? Like people, people aren't just going to champion your book to be a, a good guy. Like you have to make it clear what's in it for them. Um, and I think that is its own separate skill set. But it really, I, I mean, I recommend it. I think it's important and I think it paid off. There's a lot of books that are great books that just kind of land with a thud because they don't have enough buzz behind them. And I think you can do a lot with not a lot of money if you're willing to like really hustle. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work. I have not worked on my new book in months because it's just been all consuming. Well, this has been a lot of great information. This is the exact reason why I started doing these like debut author interviews, because I feel like personally, I knew very little about what it's like putting that first book out there. And I feel like a lot of our listeners get into the end of an MFA program and thinking about, okay, what's next? Like, this is all super, super helpful and interesting information. So Normally, like I said, I'm interviewing current MFA students. And the last question I usually ask them is, what is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from their expectations when applying? So I want to ask you a slightly different version of this. What is one way in which the publishing experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when you first started submitting? I honestly, I don't know if I had any idea how the publishing industry worked when I started submitting. And I think I thought once you sell the book, you're golden, like that's it. And then once you're inside it, you realize there's all these different tiers, like your big five or your indie, your front list or your mid list. And a lot of what people are reading, they think they're picking out, but they're not like those books are pre-selected for you because the machine is kind of like so powerfully getting behind books, certain books before they're released. So um, it has been more hands-on. I think that is the biggest surprise is how much of the success of it really depends on your ability to champion the book. And I think the writing community has been, the like professional writing community has been surprisingly wonderful. Like I, I have found if you reach out to other writers, they are 
more than willing to share their experiences, help in any way they can, you know, whether that's blurbing the book, giving you advice, giving you an email address of an editor you could pitch. They are the best resources in a way as other writers. So that work of forming community with with other writers is valuable. Um, and not something I think I spent a lot of time doing before I had a book out. Uh, some people are very good at that. And it was not it was not a huge focus for me. I was pretty like on my own writing. But I think that is worth doing as long as it's not at the... Ex- I do see people where the writing community part starts to eclipse their actual writing. So it's um, knowing knowing when to like tap into that and when to take a step back and focus on your work. Well, this has been fantastic. Congratulations again. Thanks for taking the time to stop by and talk to me. I encourage everyone listening to get a copy of Rabbit Hole from their local independent bookstore if possible. You can also go to katebrodyauthor.com to find places to order it. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you so much. This was fun.